Testing. Yeah, it seems to be on, Rachel.
No? It's odd. Must just be me. Okay. Um, Hopefully there won't be too much snow. I apologize in advance. I've got a throat lozenge in my mouth, uh, throat. So please, please uh, indulge me. Of evening program pending inclement weather. So, um, Dale, you, you got, you got, a, you you got an update. in favor of having a catered event here. Okay, that all looks pretty unanimous. I'm thinking that we usually have them on a Saturday here. Saturday night, uh, probably. We'll shoot for that. Marcy here today? Oh, I nominate Marcy to head up the committee <laughs> for two weeks. All in favor? You have the color though. From a safe distance. Okay. So you're saying that's plan B? Yeah, I would think that because you can get dessert, you can get sides, you sure. can get meat, you can get everything. And then we could just figure up the cost and give everybody kind of an idea for head of. I'll be sure to I'll, I'll sure to be be sure to run that past our uh, chairman uh, <laughs> also as a, as, a, as an alternative plan. So. Chairwoman. Chairwoman. Sorry, politically incorrect. Okay, uh, scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Psalm 31. 
and that'll be page 867 in your pew Bibles. Sure. How about this Saturday? This Saturday coming up? How about that? Because it gives us plenty of time to get in there and get it and get the decorations up for a couple weeks. Yeah, we can make it, can make it, and if we can't, oh well. Okay. What Any? time uh, we have friends more like? 10 o'clock? Yeah. 10 o'clock Saturday morning? Okay. Many hands make light work? <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah. Okay. Good. Psalm 31.
rise and stand with us as we begin our service of opening prayer. <clears throat> Brother Ken Lewis, would you lead us, please, in this opening prayer? Christmas music to do for today. Um, it's it's fun. I like to do good music for Christmas and it's always fun. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm sorry. Oh, and Hannah. I'm sorry. And my daughter, Hannah. <laughs> okay, will you take your red hymnal and turn to number 715? 715 in your red.
church looks back there and see if you raise your hands. <laughs> Jess, do you have one?
Is everybody uh, comfortable? Is it too hot in here? Do we need to turn the fan on? Or? You sure? Okay, let us know. <coughs> Scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, and that'll be page 1841 in your pew Bible. And when you arrive to that, please stand with us. <coughs> First Thessalonians five verses twelve through twenty eight. <coughs> Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You were all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as our helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, 
pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Father, we pray that you would add your blessings to this holy and inspired scripture reading, that it may open the heart of the lost and confirm the heart of those of your children. In the name of Christ. Take your brown hymnal and turn to number 58, number 58 in the Bible. Our scripture text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and following.
A young couple gives birth to a long-awaited child, and together they thank God in prayer for the healthy new baby that now adorns their home and lights up the new nursery. A hard-working husband is up for promotion at his place of employment, but there are two others under consideration for the same position. The boss promises to make his decision by November 20th. That day comes, and this Christian husband is informed that he has the promotion. So there's celebration and thanksgiving in his home that night with his wife and family. It's a cold winter day. The roads are icy. The sky is full of snow, and the winds are whipping it into blizzard-like conditions. Suddenly the car goes out of control and skids across the median, nearly missing oncoming traffic, and it lands in the ditch. Perspiring from fear and shaken by the accident, the young man inside nonetheless collects his composure enough to thank God for his watch care over him and for sparing his life. What do all these scenarios have in common in regard to thanksgiving? Is it not that the prayers of all involve giving thanks for what is perceived as good things which have come into their lives at the hand of God? A new baby, a promotion, a pay raise at work, Surviving a near-death accident on the highway. Good things, good things, good things. What would be the case, however, if the scenarios were changed? Instead of a new baby, a barren couple. Instead of a promotion at work, the loss of your job and your income. Instead of a near brush with death on the highway, the actual loss of life. Could we see God's hand in these latter developments as well as in the former? Would we be as quick to thank him for the trials as well as for the joys? The scripture before us today is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, which exhorts us with a trilogy of seemingly impossible commands. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Here's the impossible commands given to us by the Apostle Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be joyful always. Number one. Pray continually. Number two, give thanks in all circumstances. Number three, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Since it's Thanksgiving Sunday, I want to concentrate on the latter. Give thanks in all circumstances. Yes, even for adversity. And as we come to God's word, 
Let's ask for his enablement. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the statutes of Scripture that help <clears throat> formulate our worldview. It's very easy to pray for and thanks for good things that come into our lives. But, but this Scripture paints a blacker picture. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. Not just in the good things, but in the bad things. Who in their right mind would do something like that? Well, God's people are charged to do that. And this morning I ask that you will help us understand why that's the case and how we can implement it in our lives to the praise and glory of our Savior. Be with the ones that couldn't be here today. <clears throat> I think of the roads and how that deters people from getting out, especially our elderly. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless us today, keep us safe as we uh, return home. Thank you for those that made the effort to make it out today. In Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen. I want to talk today about thanking God for bad things. Probably not a Thanksgiving message you were planning to hear. First thing I would say about this is that it is possible to thank God for bad things and to mean it. There are many examples of this in the Bible. When Satan attacked Job, by God's permission, you remember, he lost all of his livestock, all of his servants, all of his wealth, and most horrendous of all, all of his ten adult children, and he lost all these things in a day. In a day. And to make matters worse, there was absolutely no, what I would call, breather room between disasters. See, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. As soon as one servant came running to report an incident, another would be right on his heels, and that servant would have more bad news. <coughs> and then the next servant would come. More bad news. And then the next. It was like pouring water on a drowning man. Think of this. And the coup de grace was the news of his sons and daughters killed by the collapse of the older brother's house in which they were all feasting together. Something we do on Thanksgiving days, right? At this, Job fell to the ground in worship, the scripture says, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You know, all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job 1. Verse 21 and 22. And this is all the more remarkable when we listen to God's evaluation of Job 
in the discourse with Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? God asked Satan. There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Chapter 1, verse 8. Boy, we'd probably give anything to have that stated in our account about us. Really? Fears God and shuns evil. Blameless, upright. What this means, of course, is that we cannot attribute what happened to Job to his being a wicked man. You just can't do that. We cannot say, well, God was punishing him. We cannot say, he deserved the bad things which befell him. That's the way we think sometimes. Bad things happen to bad people, and they deserve it. But Job's problem becomes an enigma to us because in his case, there is no cause and effect. Bad bad things happen to one whom God called blameless and upright. Whoa. That just doesn't fit, does it? We don't think this way. Bad things happen to one whom God called blameless and upright. Did not Job unwittingly display that righteousness in his worship of God, in his resignation to the will of God, come what may? The text does not say he thanked God for what happened. But worship, if it is anything, is bowing to the will of God. Not in a grin and bear attitude, but in gratitude for who God is and what he has done. There is a connection between praising God and thanking God. At the laying of the foundation of Zerubbabel's temple, we read, With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. Here's what they sang. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. Ezra 3, verse 11. Praise, thanksgiving. Again, Psalm 106. Verse 1 and 2, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Thanksgiving, praise. So to thank the Lord and to praise the Lord are practically synonymous. Praise issues from a heart that is filled with gratitude. Job said of the Lord at the loss of his children, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
Whoa. Job 1, verse 21. Could you thank the Lord? And I've asked this of myself. Could you thank the Lord? Indeed, could you praise the Lord for taking all of your children in one bold, sweeping moment in time? Then secondly, consider King Nebuchadnezzar who bragged about the Babylon that he built He says, for his own glory and his own majesty. Not exactly a humble guy, right? (laughs) But God caused him to have a dream which he could not interpret. So Daniel was summoned to give its meaning. And Daniel came. And he said, this is the interpretation. You will be driven away from your people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, that's the Bible's way of saying seven years. A time is a, is a year. Seven times, seven years will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Daniel 4, verse 24 and following. And it happened as predicted. Verse 33 of that chapter states that he was driven from men. I'm reading scripture. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. His nails like the claws of a bird. And Nebuchadnezzar lived that way like a brute beast of the field for a long time. In the dream, God's messenger predicted, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. Till seven times pass over him. Seven years. Chapter 4, verse 16. Listen now to his confession. At the end of that time, I... Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Daniel 4 verse 34. Three verses later we read the content of his praise. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt And glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. Wait a minute. Oh wait just a minute here. Nebuchadnezzar has just spent. Seven years as a wild animal. With a peanut brain. Grazing in the meadows. Like cattle unrecognizable as a human being in his long matted hair and his claw-like nails. And here he is praising God for all this bad misfortune which God sent upon him. 
We read that and we scratch our head. Whoa. What could Nebuchadnezzar possibly be thinking? He says he has regained his sanity. But this this surely looks a little insane to be glorifying God for all this heartache, all of this trouble coming his way. Well, we don't have to guess. Here's his thinking. It's for us in the book. I glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. All of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God had done him good by sending heartache and humiliation his way. He had rescued him from the damning sin of inordinate pride. Remember, that was the first sin. You were perfect on the day you were created, God told the archangel, until pride was found in your heart. God convinced Nebuchadnezzar that there is room in the universe for but one God, and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't him. So he could thank God for the bad things in his life. That a pagan pagan king of Babylon would come to these conclusions is a rebuke to us for all those times when we whine and fuss with God over the adversity that he sends into our lives. Could it possibly be that God in sending adversity into our lives is also working to bring us to a better understanding of who God is and who we are and how how we are so Bolden to God in his grace and mercy to bring us into his family. For our third example, I want you to consider with me the Apostle Paul. His testimony to the Corinthian church cataloged his life as an apostle of Jesus and compared it with that of the false teachers who were attempting to distort the gospel at Corinth. Here's what he says. Paul writes, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. Been flogged more severely. Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following. And this long list of ill treatment might be attributed by some to Paul's enemies, or at least enemies of the gospel. Some might say that being shipwrecked could happen to anyone in those dangerous days of sailing, but Paul praises God for these things. And in particular, that in his own weaknesses, God promised, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. By way of context, God had sent a messenger of Satan to be a thorn in Paul's flesh to keep him from becoming conceited because of the many wonderful revelations he was receiving privately as God's apostle. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, Paul wrote, It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena. He's talking about the Roman Colosseum. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored to this very hour. We go hungry and thirsty and we are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Paul is saying that God has placed him and the other apostles in this path. They are living out what God has sent their way. And this is a lot of heartache to bear to be an apostle, an ambassador for Christ. I mean, it's enough to make any man bitter with his lot in life. But this is Paul's evaluation. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me in this service. I was shown mercy, speaking of his salvation. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only 
God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 and following. He is showing us, brethren, that it is possible to thank God for adversity in your life and to mean it. To mean it. But secondly, what's the rationale behind thanking God for adversity? I mean, it sounds so not right. Well, the uh, rationale is this, that God is in sovereign control of all of the events which come into your life, including the bad things. There are not two deities at work in the universe. It's where the world goes wrong. Satan, the evil deity... God, the good deity. That's the way the world thinks. It's the way many religions think. Now, if you think in this dualistic way, you will get no comfort and no understanding of adversity. God himself gives this testimony. Here it is. There's no God beside me, says God. I put to death, I bring to life. I have wounded, and I will heal. And no one can deliver me out, deliver themselves out of my hand. Deuteronomy 12, verse 39. So God is in control of adversity, wounding, as well as blessing, healing. To King Cyrus of Persia, whom God used to subdue nations, he said, I summon you by name, and I bestow on you a title of honor. Though you do not acknowledge me, I am the Lord, there's no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 4 and following. And it's repeated in verse 14 and verse 18. All that, Isaiah 45. He's telling Cyrus, in no uncertain terms, that Cyrus is a king of God's own appointment, verse 1. He's not God, no matter what he thinks. And as such, he can just as easily be removed from his place of honor by God. If God so chooses. In context, God demonstrates to Cyrus just how God evidences his deity and his sovereignty. He tells Cyrus some things that ought to be convincing. Number one, he speaks of his creative powers. I form the light, I create the darkness. Verse 7. Verse 12, it is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. 
Secondly, his governing powers even over evil. Verse 7. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. He silences his critics and would-be rivals. Verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. To him who is but a potsherd, that is a broken piece of pottery. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the works of my hands? How absurd is that? Think about it. But that's our world. That's because they create God in their own image. They don't listen to the God of the Bible declare who he is. Third, he has ability to rule and overrule the decisions of nations who trust in idols. Verse 16, all the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. Verse 29, gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods who cannot save. I think it's in Isaiah that Isaiah talks about the fact that these sculptures take a block of wood They cut it. Some of the block of wood they use for firewood to warm their hands. And some of the block of wood they use to carve an idol. And then they fall down in front of it and worship what they themselves carved from the block of wood. And Isaiah points out how absurd that is. You made the idol and then you fall down and worship it as though it made you. That's the insanity of a mind that is not attuned to God, to reality even. Number four, his ability to foretell the future, while the idol worshipers cannot. Verse 21, who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? There's no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none but me. Again, that's all from Isaiah. Then five, his willingness and his ability to save sinners. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am a God and there's no other. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. You see what God is doing here. He's making the case for his uniqueness as the God of the universe, the Savior of sinners. And he's doing it in a way that attacks every idol worshiper. And all the idols made of wood, stone, precious metals, whatever they might be. Or in our day, riches, cars, mansions, whatever. And we should thank God 
we should thank God for adversity because he is behind it in one form or another. Try to get behind your trouble and see the hand of God in it. It's the first rationale of being thankful. If you don't think God is in the adversity, then you're going to gripe about the adversity. And not only that, you're going to gripe against God, saying, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? And on and on we go. Secondly, recognize that God has a bigger plan in mind than your happiness. I know that's hard for us to swallow, but it's true. All that God does is for his own glory and his own honor. You are not the be-all, the end-all of what God does. In fact, you are not the end at all. You and I are simply the means to the end. What's the end? Well, the end is God's glory. How am I the means? By becoming whatever God wills and accomplishing his plan with fidelity and trust. We read this morning from Paul's own lips, the heartache, the pain, the suffering that he had to endure as an apostle of Jesus Christ. His boasting was not in how strong a Christian he was, but in how weak. What was the point? Well, Jesus gave him this principle. My power, said Jesus, is made perfect in weakness. Listen to Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast... All the more, gladly, is that really right? He's saying this. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why for Christ's sake I delight. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships. In persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and following. Strong because of Christ's power. Let's sort out the logic here. The principle of us being the means, not the end, of what God does, indicates that you and I are not the main player in the scenario. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and following, God chooses to call and use people who are, let me read it for you, foolish by the world's standard, weak, lowly, despised people who are not, that is the nobodies, as opposed to the somebodies of the world, of society. That's who God chooses to use. 
why does God do this? Two reasons. Number one, so that no one may boast before him. Chapter 1, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians. And second, so that God gets the glory in all that you and I become and all the right things that we do. God takes people who are foolish, weak, lowly, not influential in society, and he works his will and power through them. We then become, we then become the pages of the Bible the people of the world see and read. They know nothing of the power of God in their lives, but they get to see it in yours. Power over such things as illness and heartache and tragedy and pain and suffering and poverty, even death. Now, we are not superhuman in these things. But we are products of God's grace and God's power. Paul says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, that is knowledge and light, in jars of clay. Not fine Lenox china, but jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7. Sounds like God did this on purpose. He's chosen the lowly and just broken shards of pottery and nothing elegant about us. For this to happen will mean that everything that comes into your life will not be peaches and cream. It's not going to happen. Nor will God get the most glory from how you handle adversity. Unless it's in a God-honoring way. It was so with our Lord. Just hours before his crucifixion. And in reference to his crucifixion. Jesus prayed these words. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now this is eternal life, that they, the people of the earth, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. John 17, verse 1 and following. Verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. What is this? 
Well, Jesus wants his disciples to see that he goes to the cross gladly because his sacrifice will mean salvation for sinners and glory for God the Father. He wants them to experience his joy in this. Hebrews 12, verse 2 enjoins us, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus was pleased to be the means to the end, the instrument by which God would be glorified as the Savior of sinners. Now, if you and I can grasp the principle that we are but vessels for the Master's use, we will find joy in adversity. And we will be thankful to be empowered by God to bring Him the glory that's due His name. Now, what are the benefits of a thankful heart with regard to adversity. Well, thankful hearts have joy. That's number one. Thankful hearts have joy. Well, how can that be? We normally think of trouble as that which destroys our joy. We are moved out of our comfort zone. And the stress tends to frazzle our nerves and makes us anxious. You have to consider what I am saying in light of everything else that we've learned this morning, not the least of which, that God is sovereign over all the events in your life, the good events, the bad events. He's the one that's sovereign over it all. But there's another dimension here, and it is this. God works to bring good results out of bad experiences. There's none other like him in this. Classic text is Romans... 8 verse 28, let me read it. We know that in all things God works for the good. For the good, let me read it. For the good, he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's important to note what Paul does not say here. He does not say God is trying to work out all things for the good of those who love him, but rather that he is doing it. He does not say God does this for every person on earth, but only for those who love him. He does not say that God does this for everyone who professes to love him, but only for those who have been called according to his purpose, those in whom God himself has a vested interest. Other scriptures say very similar things. Philippians 2.13, It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, God has a good purpose in the bad things which come your way. And his purpose will not be frustrated. Paul in prison, think about this. Paul in prison wrote to the church at Philippi saying, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
But as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He's saying I've been arrested because he was preaching Christ. And the palace guards know this. The Roman guards know this. What's his crime? Oh, well, ashamedly, we have to say, <laughs> this, this guy was condemned for being a preacher. Well, was he preaching insurrection? Was he preaching overthrow of the government? Was he saying wicked things against Caesar? Now, is this this uh, Palestinian Jew down there, this, this Christ who preached love and salvation, that then he was preaching that, and that's why he was arrested. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. For Christ. Or again, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. Philippians 1, verse 12 and following. Wow. What normally makes people cower in fear and hide and try not to be noticed, namely persecution, has had the opposite effect because of Paul's chains. Wow. He is chained, but as he told Timothy, God's word is not chained. 2 Timothy 2, verse 9. And the brethren were emboldened to speak. You remember, because Paul was imprisoned. It's like they thought, hmm, well, our apostle, our, our champion, he got him locked up in prison. He didn't lock us up yet. Whoa, oh, I'll tell you what, why don't we get out there on the corner and preach? And they did. And then, too, if God is in all events and is working them for our good, would not the other imperatives in our verse be an outgrowth? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, be joyful always. Point. Because even from the bad things, God is bringing good things. We can be joyful that God's ultimate purposes are never nullified by the evil of our world. He just plows ahead with his own agenda, rolling over all the opposition by the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He rolls over them as like a steamroller, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Psalm 2 says he sits enthroned in heaven and what? Laughs at those who conspire against him. He had a grip. Brethren, Satan, power, and evil men's powers do not run the world. God does. 
God does. And he even uses wicked men. I didn't say he made them wicked, but he uses them and their wickedness to accomplish what he wants done. So thankful hearts are full of joy and they're encouraged. Secondly, they are content hearts. This follows from being at peace with one's happening. Lose your earthly belongings. It's okay. Because we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 1 Timothy 5, verse 7. Every time Apple introduces a new iPhone, people line up on the sidewalks in front of the Apple stores. They'll even camp on the sidewalk overnight. Why? Well, they want to have the latest and the greatest technology in a phone that will only allow them to talk to other human beings. But you and I have the glorious position to talk to the God of the universe. And we don't need a phone. We just need a humble heart. Still living in a rental property, your dream home of having that someday, you don't have that yet. It's okay, because like Abraham and Sarah, who preferred tents to mansions, which they could afford, by the way, we too are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 12, verse 10. Every other city is destined to melt away in the fervent heat of the coming fire of judgment. Do you know that about our world? It's just temporary. Suffering from sickness in body, or if not sickness, maybe sensing that some of your abilities are slipping away. Physical strength, I, I see that in me. Mental acuity, yeah. Memory problems, yes. Old age, yeah. Even death staring me in the face. It's okay. It is okay because, as with Paul, we can say we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we are alive, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. principle being this our weakness is an opportunity for god's power our dying is an opportunity for god to display his resurrection life here's his here's his conclusion so then death is at work in us what's paul saying death is at work in us Well, he's saying simply, you're dying, folks. You're dying. We're all dying. But life is at work in you. 
because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace which is reaching more and more people may come may cause rather thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10 of following. Next chapter, we are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Thankful hearts are contented hearts. Life or death, we're going to agonize over that. Okay, so we're all in the body of death. Paul says that. Can't live forever. Is that occasion for gloom and doom? No, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, if you know the Lord as Savior. What could be bad about that? Then thirdly, can thankful hearts can knowingly anticipate future glory. That's important. The great goal of God, the end, is to bring glory and honor to himself as the only God as only God deserves. Inasmuch, however, as your life and mine is utilized as the means whereby God accomplishes this, God has ordained that we, his people, will share in his glory. It's unbelievable to think about this. We're going to share in Christ's glory. The Romans 8 text, which told us that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, it goes on to state God's set purpose and the completion of it. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. It's written in the past tense. They're already glorified in the mind of God. He goes on, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And in verse 18, Paul connects this with adversity, stating, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For in this hope we were saved. It's not even an honest comparison. Our sufferings versus what God has prepared for us in glory. He's telling us flat out. It isn't always going to be pain and suffering. It isn't always going to be adversity, sorrow, tragedy, deprivation, you name it. Ephesians 5.27 tells us that Christ died for his church, that is his bride, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to himself a glorious church. 
without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in Romans 8, verse 17, Now if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8, verse 17. Beginning to get the bigger picture. I think we need to remind ourselves of this sometimes. We get down in the dumps over things that are happening in our life in a sinful world. And we forget, hey folks, this world is not our home. The song says we're just passing through. It's a corridor. We're passing through. Are you destined to share in the glory of Christ? I pray that's the same for you. It can be so today when you repent of your sin to turn away from resentment and hostility and surrender in faith to Christ and to his lordship over you. The world thinks it has it bad now. Nothing in this world, I don't care how bad it is, compares to what's coming. Scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if he were just an idol of stone, or maybe even precious metal like gold or silver, having eyes, says Isaiah, but they can't see, a nose, but they can't smell, a tongue, but they can't taste. If that's your God, yeah, you don't have to be afraid of him. He can't do anything for you, and he can't do anything against you. But we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with the God who created the heavens and the earth and created all mankind, and before whom we're going to have to one day stand. I want to share in the glory of Christ. Not because I deserve it, but because he's promised it to his people. And his work did the work that I couldn't do. And that's why we have such a gracious Savior. He stooped down so he could bring us up. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are convicted in our hearts. Uh, that this is very humbling. I hope it is humbling. I can't even fathom it. The God of the universe set his affection upon us for no other reason than he set his affection upon us. He tells us that. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And whom I harden, I harden. And mankind can't do anything about it. Because you're sovereign. And in your sovereignty you can choose to love. You can choose to just pass over us. Nobody can say, what are you doing? You can't do that. 
men do that. They raise their fist in the face of God and they think that they have a right to say what should be and can be and must be when their whole life is full of sin and rejection against God. They don't have a leg to stand on, but they think they do. Lord, if we're in that condition today, I pray that you will grant us forgiveness. There's so much arrogance in that. The God of the universe, and we're holding him to to account for his actions. How absurd is that? But Lord, if you will be merciful, change our hearts, grant us faith, give us repentance, we will praise you for that. And we need repentance and faith so very, very much. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son Jesus as the atoning sacrifice to pay our debt. And we thank you. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal. And we're at 556. Five, five, six. When you find number five, five, six, will you please stand with me?
Thanksgiving. Wow. I think that should be part of our daily routine. Not just, uh, and I'm thankful for the annual holiday. I really am. If it makes our country just one day out of the year, think about thanking somebody other than themselves or their buddies or whatever. I think it's a good thing if they would reflect upon God. Thinks that was the whole idea of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and Thanksgiving Proclamation. take a nation and have it think of God's involvement in everything from politics right on down and as the politics are going these days we need to be a praying people and asking and pleading with God for repentance to come our Lord we thank you for the privilege of learning about a, a, a God that takes care of us in so many precious ways. We need to be thankful. Help us not to be greedy. Help us not to have a heart of ingratitude. I don't want a heart that says, I did it all my way, as the song says. No. We need to understand that apart from God's grace, we are nothing. We didn't get anything right. I pray that you will help us to see that. And if there's any here today that does not know God as Savior, they can know you through the person of Jesus Christ, the power of your Holy Spirit. Grant faith where it is not. Grant repentance where it is not. We'll praise you for what you do. Unless you do the work in our hearts, Lord, we are doomed. We're lost with the rest of the world that has their fist in the face of God and thinks that it has a right to condemn and charge and question and argue against your word and your Savior. As the day approaches, we are thinking of the day of Christ's coming. Give us hearts of anticipation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.